Hi, my name is Katie. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 33:12 through 14. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lou, and the New Testament reading is found in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. You unfaithful people, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Or do you suppose that scripture is meaningless? Doesn't God long for our faithfulness in the life he has given to us? But he gives us more grace. This is why it says, God stands against the proud, but favors the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will run away from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cry out in sorrow, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter become mourning, and your joy become sadness. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Carol. Please stand for the gospel reading. It's found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're pausing just a bit in our Corinthian series. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we finished the first eight chapters, and we're going to resume after Easter. We've paused on it so that we can take some time here to acknowledge this preparation season in getting ready for Easter. Now, I, I kind of... Um, my, my background was really growing up in, um, uh, in a church where we didn't talk about a word like Lent. Um, and, and even as I try to think about Good Friday services, even in New Life in the past, we didn't really have that. Uh, we sort of went all along the spring and we had a bunch of activities and then all of a sudden it was Easter, which was a big party. And there's, there's not, nothing wrong with that per se, but there can be something much more meaningful about slowing down and taking the journey with Jesus all the way to the cross. Next Sunday, we'll begin a six-week series called Lament. And um, what it will do, I hope, what I, what I pray that the Spirit of God does as we do this series uh, next week, is to help us to be honest about the painful places in our lives. Help us to be honest about the questions in our faith. And then to help us to recognize Jesus walking alongside us in that place. And to, and to imagine ourselves journeying with him to the cross. And the hope is, and we've done this now for a couple of years, um, going back to the Sunday night service and then down here downtown, we've done this a few years in, in a row now where we've said, what if we intentionally kind of journey together with Jesus toward the cross and allow the Holy Spirit to, to take us on this meaningful kind of journey? And so this morning what I want to do is really set that up with a macro lens to say, all right, why? Why any of this? Why, why talk about repentance and humility and, 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 and all of these things that can sound so heavy? Why are we doing that? 
a question that I hear from time to time, both in person and one that I observe just sort of out there as people are, are having conversations in social media and other places. But the question that keeps recurring is, when is the church going to catch up with the times? When is the church going to sort of get with it? I mean, after all, don't you think we'll look back someday and find that we were really pretty backwards about stuff? And, and why were we old-fashioned? Or are Christians just in love with, with old things or the old ways? Are Christians stuck in their ways? Now listen, the answer to that sometimes is yes. Sometimes. But there is another sense in which we have to say, you know what? Christians have a different idea about truth and about history than maybe the accepted view. Let me explain what I mean. If you press someone to say, what do you mean, get with the times? Or what do you mean, progressive? What, what, what do you mean by this? Oftentimes, what's underneath that view is this view of progress that is this line that keeps going up. And so, in other words, every era or every age must know more than the era before it. Or every civilization that is now must be superior to a civilization that was then. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this, and he called it the chronological snobbery, where we sort of imagine, snobbery, where we imagine that our moment is better than those moments. Now, you can see it on a mass scale, like societies, cultures as a whole, but you also see it in individuals, because it's very fashionable to look back at previous phases of your own life and look at it as just that, a phase. And so sometimes, it's interesting, I've been rereading Screwtape Letters, you know, the the book Lewis wrote about a senior demon instructing a younger demon, right? And so he says, encourage your, your patient, your client, to think that his religious phase was just that, a phase. And make sure he's well fed with all of these notions that people outgrow phases. And help him to have the same attitude that people do, which is to look back at previous moments in their life and say, oh, I was so foolish then. Oh, that was so silly. Oh, that was so, you know... Because if we can do that, then we will be convinced that what is now is automatically superior to what was then. The trouble is, this isn't how it is, is it? In fact, there are, they ha there are whole periods of history where we would look back and say, you know what, we lost what we once knew. For example, when we talk about the Dark Ages, controversially called the Dark Ages, nonetheless, it, part of the reason it was called that is because there was a time when every... Everything, even from a learning standpoint through the Greeks, was lost for a while. When libraries were burned and when, when learning and virtue education and all of this stuff disappeared. And then all of a sudden there was this rebirth of classical learning, approach, and virtue, character. And part of this gives birth to a new kind of scholasticism in the late medieval period and, and, and maybe was the seedbed of the Reformation and all of this stuff. The point is simply this. There have been periods of history where we've lost what we once had, where we've forgotten what we once knew. And so if you're, imagine this with me, okay? If you're going on a journey, let's say you're going on an old-fashioned voyage, and you, you get on the ship and you've just left the port, and all of a sudden you realize, you know where we're going? We're going to this island, and we forgot sunscreen, You're like, all we've got with us is winter clothes because it's still snowing in Colorado. So wait, turn the ship around. We've got to go back. We've got to get this stuff. We've got to get beach towels. We gotta, because we don't have what we need for where we are going. 
If you're about to go on a journey and you realize that you don't have what you need for where you're going, you will turn back and go get it. That there is something important about saying, you know what, I am not so enslaved to this myth of progress that I will never turn back to recover what might have been lost, to remember what might have been forgotten. I've been through this, I'm going through this in my own personal life. Many of you who, who are aware of some of my journey, even in thinking about worship, a big part of the reason we've structured service the way we have at New Life Downtown is because of this journey that I've been on. I've realized through the help of, of, of some of you in here, I've realized that worship, what we do when we gather together as the people of God, is not just an expressive thing. You know, non-denominational folks, we, we think of worship as what we do toward God, our expression. So anything goes. But you know, I've come to realize that worship is also formation. There's a downward movement. There's not just this upward movement of expression. There's this downward movement that we are formed by the very rituals and habits we do repeatedly. We are. That, that, that becoming formed in the image of Christ is not just a matter of a mental ascent to a set of ideas, but is also embodied in these practices, these things that we do over and over again. That's why some of you that have been married for many, 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 many years, you've said, you know what, part of the thing about a good marriage is you just keep being there. You sit down and eat when you're not feeling butterflies. You talk when you're... You just keep it going. You have these date nights. You have these rhythms. You do these things. Not because if you only waited to be, you know, sort of floating on the cloud before you spoke to one another. You just keep doing it. And over time, you realize, you know what? We're being formed by this. We're being bonded by this. this a very similar thing happens in worship. And as I've been on this journey, one of the things I've realized is there were some old prayers and practices of the Christian church from the early centuries and then in the Reformation period that were very important with helping us rehearse the gospel each week. So maybe you've heard me say this, but I, I, I've, we've tried to make sure that our services downtown are gospel-shaped, meaning we don't end with the, this is how you must live. God bless you, everybody. I hope you're sufficiently amped to go live this way. We end with, this is how God, what God is calling us into, and so we confess our sin. And so we say, God, have mercy. And so we hear again the words that say, you are forgiven. And so we come to the table and receive this reminder again, this we receive in a fresh way. We say, God, thank you for your grace meeting us here so that when we leave, we leave not with more determination, but we leave with the grace of God brimming out of our hearts. That's what it means to be gospel-shaped. But see, I've learned that as I've looked backwards toward older liturgies. The other thing that I've, I've learned is how intentionally Christ-centered everything is. That when you go back to the early, earliest Christian worship practices centered around the table. That everything else, the singing, there was this moment of the scripture and there was this moment of the table. Later on, some reformers would call it the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table. That everything we do must let us hear the word and let us come to the table. And in, in those two things, what we, you know what we receive in the very middle of it all? is Christ. We see Jesus over and over again. Well, 
even our language here downtown, we call it blessed, broken, and given. That's communion table language. That's reminding us of Jesus saying, in his hands, we are blessed. In Jesus' hands, we are broken. In Jesus' hands, we are given for the sake of the world. Well, as I've been on this recovery journey myself, I've realized that one of the streams that has been kind of a steward of these traditions, if you will, a steward of these early Christian traditions, is the stream, the Reformation stream of Anglicanism. And um, it's interesting because a few years ago I met some evangelical Anglicans in town, and some of you may think, evangelical Anglicans? I never knew that existed. I'll post a blog this afternoon that will explain to you maybe more than you ever wanted to know uh, about, about the different streams within Anglicanism and its, its Protestant Reformation roots and how in the global south is where the majority of Anglicans are and they're... Uh, believe in the authority of Scripture and welcome the work of the Holy Spirit and things that might be surprising to you. But anyway, these brothers in, in town uh, approached me and they said, Glenn, you, you, you realize, or I shouldn't say they approached me, we were talking and they said, Glenn, you realize you're sounding very Anglican. And I said, well, I, I, I was christened as a baby in an Anglican church back in Malaysia. My mom comes from three or four generations. I've always loved Anglican writers, C.S. Lewis, you know, John Stott and all this stuff. They said, well, you know, you could kind of get a, um, a dual citizenship here. I was like, what do, you, what do you mean a dual citizenship? They said, well, you, I know you're ordained as a pastor at New Life, but do you know you, you, it's possible you could also get ordained as a priest within the Anglican church. I just kind of looked at him and said, why, why would I do that? You know, I don't, I don't I mean, I, I'm fine, I'm happy, this is where I'm called. He said, no, you could keep serving where you're called. But I, I, anyway, so... So these conversations kept happening, and we invited Pastor Brady into it, and we began talking. And there was one particular meeting where Pastor Brady was there, and a couple of these guys were there, and we said, you know what, could it be that the Holy Spirit is in this to build a little bridge here? Could it be that for so long we've stayed in our little corners as the church, convinced that everybody else must be wrong? Or, or whatever, just because the few of them are. I mean, listen, if we were judged by our worst adherents, we'd be in trouble. But we judge others by their worst adherence or their, their worst expressions or whatever. So, so we began to talk about this and say, could there be something of the Lord in this? But not just a bridge that would allow me to, to maybe uh, be able to speak into that world from time to time, but also something that gives me um, a bit of credibility when I say, hey, here's a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. I'm not a liturgical thief <laughs> picking and choosing, but borrowing from something legitimately, or borrowing from something. The way a dual citizen would say, you know what, this is this other thing, we're here, but hey, here's, here's a dish they make over there that's really delicious. Here's something we can add to our feast as we come to the table each week. That's one of the things that's been exciting to me is to say, okay, listen, if everything we're about here at New Life Downtown is about being Christ-centered and gospel-shaped, are there more things we can add to the feast that would help that? And what could, what, and so anyway, we began, we continued this conversation and um, prayerfully decided that we would proceed. And so I know some of you are like, well, what does this mean for us? It doesn't mean anything for New Life Downtown. New Life Downtown remains under the covering of New Life Church. Pastor Brady remains my covering, my boss. A hundred percent of your tithes and offerings go to New Life Church. 
What it allows for is a little bit of a bridge for me and a little bit of a dual citizenship credibility so that when we say these prayers or when we come to the table, maybe it'll just help us have a bit of a glimpse to say, you know what's kind of cool? The table is what all Christians do. Or these prayers or this creed, this is, there's something bigger than us in our pocket happening here. So it was a bit of a process, uh, as you can imagine. A good one involved a, 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 a theology exam, involved um, a counseling screening for my wife and I to evaluate the health of our lives and marriage. We passed. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and inv- it involved uh, you know, lots of other conversations as well. Well, a couple weeks ago, just about two weeks ago, I completed phase one in this. Phase one is becoming ordained as a deacon, and then later this year in August, God willing, uh, to be ordained as a priest. Now, I'm, I'm probably never going to wear the collar on Sunday morning, um, but here's a picture just so you can see it. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I'm in the middle. I guess uh, you can't really see that. So, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, and please don't ever call me Father Glenn. That just would be weird. Okay. Now, <laughs> what? And I will invite you to the whole deal in August, okay, if you want to come and see a ceremony. I know these ceremonies can be funny, but I realize, you know, all ceremonies are funny, right? I mean, they're, they're very deeply meaningful, and yet, at a graduation ceremony, you, wear, you have a cap and a gown. When do you ever wear that again, right? So there's also gowns that you wear, but it's all part of the gravitas of the moment and, and part of the Lord's uh, setting you apart. And actually, for Holly and I, it's, it's been a really meaningful uh, additional piece, and, and some of you were there on this first night. And, uh, it has really felt like the Spirit of God giving a second yes to our life and calling, and so I just wanted to share that with all of you. So there you go. Okay. So Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, what does Jesus have to say to a people that are convinced in progress? What does Jesus have to say to people who are convinced that what is now must be better than what was then? What does Jesus have to say? Matthew 11 was our gospel text, but we're actually going to start with verse 20. The first thing I think we would say after reading this text, and we'll say this first and then read, is that Jesus calls us to repentance. Repentance is on the lips of Jesus himself. Verse 20, and then he began to scold the cities where he had gone where he had done his greatest miracles, because they didn't change their hearts and lives. How terrible it will be for you, Chorazin. How terrible it will be for you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have changed their hearts and lives and put on funeral clothes and ashes a long time ago. There's ashes as a symbol of repentance. But I say to you that Tyre and Sidon will be better off on judgment day than you... And you, Capernaum, will you be honored by being raised up to heaven? No, you'll be thrown down to the place of the dead. After all, if the miracles that were done among you had been done in Sodom, it would still be here today. But I say to you, it'll be better for the land of Sodom on judgment day than it will be for you. Now these are stunning words from Jesus. Because we're familiar with other words of Jesus. We're familiar with Jesus saying, let him who has sinned cast the first stone, which will be our gospel text on on Ash Wednesday. But we're not familiar with the Jesus who says, woe to you. 
I did all these displays to show you that the kingdom is arriving and you wouldn't turn back. It's going to be better for these wicked cities on Judgment Day than you. In fact, we don't often imagine Jesus as giving any warnings about judgment. And I know there's different ways to think about the wrath of God. But the one thing that we can't escape is that there is a future wrath that is coming. If you're you know, a seminary person in here, you'll know this phrase. There is an eschatological judgment. There's something coming at the very last. And what Jesus has come to do is to say, that doesn't need to be how your story ends. That doesn't need to be the pronouncement on your life. But if you insist on this way, it will be. And Jesus calls us to repentance, not because Jesus is angry and foaming at the mouth and shooting lasers out of his eyes. (laughs) Jesus calls us to repentance because he's saying, you guys, I am about to take the death that is yours. Don't insist on taking it too. I'm about to go and carry the weight of the sin of the world on myself. Don't insist on carrying it too. Turn away. Turn away from this. Now think about these towns that Jesus mentions. Bethsaida was the home village of Andrew and Philip and Peter. Capernaum was where Jesus' ministry operations headquarters was. Not that he had that sort of thing, but that was his home base. Imagine Jesus saying to these towns now, not as this random kind of, I'm saying you're all going to hell. Imagine a Jesus who's talking about towns that he knows people that he grew up with, fishermen, vendors, family members, that he knew their names and their stories. I think you get a different picture of Jesus' woe to you words. Maybe this is Jesus saying, you guys, why? I, I know you, this doesn't have to be the way. Like a parent would say to a child, why are you, you don't see where this is going, but I don't turn away. Repentance, in a very simple way, is simply turning around, turning away, and turning toward. Turning away and turning toward. When Jesus calls us to repentance, it's because he know, knows where this road is going. And he says, turn away and turn toward We'll see what he says to turn to word in just a moment. C.S. Lewis, we've already talked a bit about him, but it's hard to escape Lewis's voice in my head when I think about this. But Lewis has this wonderful quote where he says, We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn, walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. That's wonderful, isn't it? You Christians, why are you so backwards? Why do you keep turning away from this? Because we don't think that road leads to the right way. We're not sure. Let's turn away from that. Listen, the, the way of self-reliance, the way of violence, the way of dominance, the way of all, you can name it. You can name it from a societal standpoint about violence and dominance and empire, or you can name it on a personal level of greed and selfishness and perversion. Ah, I'm not going that way, not because I'm better than you. It's just because I just don't. That's not where we want to go. I'm turning away. Jesus calls us to repentance because he says there's something else. Matthew 28, verse 28, chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, 
all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put my yoke, put on my yoke and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. Jesus offers us rest. What are we turning toward? If we're turning away from that and this road, what are we turning toward? Sometimes I think as Christians, we need over and over again to be reminded of the one that we are turning toward. And sometimes it's easy to make much of all the things we're supposed to turn away from. Don't do that! Don't do that! That's awful! That's bad! That's no good! That'll destroy you! When really the most stunning words in this text here is when Jesus says, Come to me. Not simply turn away, but come to me. Do you know this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus makes a direct invitation to himself? That in other passages he says, come and follow me, come after me. But here Jesus says, come to me. As in, I am the stopping point. Now think about this for a moment. The Old Testament reading was in Exodus 33 where Yahweh says to Moses, he says, listen, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is Yahweh, the creator God, the covenant God, the God who spoke the worlds into existence, the God who calls Israel out of Egypt. This God is the God who's saying my presence will give you rest. But Jesus doesn't say come to Yahweh and Yahweh will give you rest. He says come to me. One of the most bold and audacious statements. Jesus isn't saying, I know the way. Jesus is saying, I am the way. Jesus isn't saying, I've got some solutions that will give you rest. He's saying, I have it within myself. I am the great God. I was there in the creation of the world. Through him, Paul would later say, all things were made. Through him. And Jesus says, I am this one. Come to me and I will give you rest. There are also these other books that were written in between the Old and New Testaments. There's this 400-year gap or so. We call it silence because there was no scripture. But there were other books being written. And one of them is the book of Sirach. And it records this wisdom. It's sort of Jewish wisdom. And Sirach uses this phrase, come to me, take my yoke, or, or rather, take my yoke upon you. And many commentaries said, you know what, Jesus might be echoing this familiar phrase of Jewish wisdom about taking a yoke on yourself. But do you know the yoke that Sirach was talking about? It was the yoke of Torah study. It was the yoke of saying, come take the yoke of the full Torah on you, and then life will work out. And Jesus is saying, that's not the rest I came to bring. The rest I came to bring is deeper than rigorous examination of the rules, the attempt to sort of pick it up for yourself. The yoke that Jesus invites us to take up is the yoke that connects us to him, himself, Jesus. See, the thing is, what he's contrasting here is not simply law versus gospel, but really Phariseeism versus Jesus. Because the Pharisees weren't just people who said, obey the law. The Pharisees were people who said, 
well, if we've been obeying the law and God's still not rescuing us, there must be some little minutia we've missed. So let's spell it out a bit more. Let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Now listen, we have versions of that. You know, if you give this percentage or more, your businesses will be blessed. And if you haven't experienced the blessings, it's because you're, you're giving less than that percentage. I should have said that in the offering, right? <laughs> or other versions of this. You know, if you, if you would just kind of fast more then God would answer your prayer. I mean, it's good that you're praying for this person's healing, but if you fasted, that's when God will really come. Listen, anytime someone says, you know, listen, do this and God will then guaranteed, is guaranteed to do this, run the other way is right. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees were up to. They were saying, how come Yahweh has not kept his promise to rescue us? And they said, I know, I know, I know, I know, because we're missing some of these technicalities. Let's get even deeper. Let's spell this out even more. Let's do this. So, so what Jesus is saying is, come to me, take my yoke, and you'll find rest. Not the yoke of, you know what, maybe I need more faith. I, grew, I, I, I experienced this when I was in college, this culture that said, if anything bad happens, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And so if someone was sick or if someone was dying, it was, well, it's clearly it's your fault because God's not withholding healing. And so people felt this weight of like, well, it's, it's me. I, I didn't do this. Or, you know, somewhere along the way, there's this other kind of insidious vein that sounds kind of good on the surface. But the problem is, it's inverted the order of things. It's saying to you, do this and you'll experience God's blessing. When what Jesus comes announcing is he comes announcing saying, come to me, I will give you rest. And from that rest will come all these other things that you do. Think about that. The order is flipped. The Pharisee says, do this. Sirach says, take the yoke of Torah study on yourself and then you'll have the good life. And Jesus says, it's the other way around. Come to me, let me give you rest. And then from that place of rest, begin to seek my face. From that place of rest, you can fast. From that place of rest, you can give. From that place of rest, you can work, you can serve. From that place of rest, all of this comes, not in order to find rest. Some of you for too long have been in church hoping to find rest by working harder for it. So well, maybe, maybe if I just would do this, what's the secret ingredient? What am I missing? And Jesus says, There's no ingredient. There's just me. Come to me. Think for a moment about how freeing that is. It's not a magic prayer you're missing. Now, listen to what goes on here. Because he does say, take my yoke upon you. So, before we slide into this other thing of saying, well, I just got Jesus, so I'll just do whatever I want. I don't need to pray. I don't need to read my Bible. I got Jesus, baby. Remember, the issue is the order that things come in. We don't do these things in order to find rest. We have rest so that from a place of rest we can walk and live. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Jesus invites us. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. and I know it's a paraphrase, but I like it. And he says, rhythms of grace. Jesus invites us into rhythms of grace. 
Earlier we heard the phrase, my yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light. In the message paraphrase, it says it this way, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get, a, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I skipped a phrase, didn't I, Katie? Let's go back to that phrase about rest real quick. Because it's worth us writing down and meditating on. Rest comes when we trust in Christ's finished work for us and the Spirit's ongoing work in us. Rest comes when we trust in Christ's finished work for us and the Spirit's ongoing work in us. See, this is, again, uh, I, I, we just have to say this a bit more, okay? This is where we go wrong, is we think, okay, Christ, you've done this for me. Thanks so much. You've passed the baton. I'll take it from here. I've even heard pastors say, life with God is like a chess game. He moves, then you move. And if you move, then he'll move. And I've heard people say, well, you know, Jesus said it is finished, and then he sat down, so it's your turn, buddy. If you run with that motivation, you will burn out quickly. If you serve with that kind of burden, that Jesus sat down and now I've got to save the world. That's what leads pastors to burn out. That's what leads, leads missionaries to burn out because we think Jesus sat down, he said it is finished, it's my turn. But we're forgetting that the Trinity is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, it's better if I go because I'm sending the Spirit. In the words of that old Melody Green song, thank you for uh, leaving your spirit here till your work on earth is done. Who completes this work here? The Spirit. We trust in Christ's finished work, but I trust in the Spirit's ongoing work. I don't say, Jesus, thank you for your part. Now I'm going to prove it to you that I was worth it. Thank you for saving me. I'm going to make good on that investment. Thank you for putting capital into my startup. Now I will show, I will show you that I can do this. I, I trust in the Spirit's ongoing work. Okay, back to the paraphrase. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. What is a rhythm of grace? A rhythm of grace is something that helps us keep company with Jesus. If you're taking on something because you think it will bring you more rest or more peace or more blessing, that's not a rhythm of grace. That's Phariseeism. But if you're taking on something because you're saying, I, I want to keep company with Jesus and this is going to help me keep company with Jesus, then that's a rhythm of grace. I will say this, the very same thing that can be a rhythm of grace for you may just be Phariseeism for someone else. That makes sense? And this is why we're paying attention to the Spirit's work, saying, Holy Spirit, this, will, is this what you'll use to help me keep company with Jesus? So there's all kinds of rhythms. Christians from the earliest times have had rhythms to their life. The earliest Christian monastics decided one of their rhythms was going to be to pray the entire book of Psalms in one day, every day. Later on... The rule of St. Benedict said, well, let's back it down a bit. Let's take a week and pray through this whole book. In the Reformation, Cranmer in England said, let's be realistic here. How about once in 30 days? 
Now here we are, fast forward 500 years, and we're sort of like, praying the Psalms, that's a good idea. I'll do it when I feel like it. Maybe we need to say, Jesus, where is your yoke that, I, that is light, that is easy? Where is the rhythm of grace that will help me keep company with you? So there are daily rhythms. There are weekly rhythms like gathering together with the people of God. But there can also be annual rhythms. Listen, what I am discovering is that for many of us, but especially many of us who, who did not grow up in denominational or liturgical backgrounds, for many of us, the idea of marking time around the life of Christ is so refreshing. Because we're worn out for marking time by our next vacation and the next school term and the next activity and when is summer and when, you know, we're just exhausted. And if you don't have an alternate way of marking time, the world will do it for you. It's Valentine's, huh? It's Easter, bunnies, I mean. It's Mother's Day. It's not that that bad, you know. It's Father's Day, even better. Uh, it's... <laughs> And there's all these things, it's mark time with this, mark time with this, mark time with this. Listen, part of the reason the first Christians began to mark certain festivals and they were following the Jewish thing by by having certain festivals is because maybe that as human beings, as a community of human beings, we need a shared way of marking time. And the the first few centuries they said, let's at least mark time around Easter and Good Friday. And then... Not long after that, they said, well, let's prepare. We're going to baptize a bunch of new Christians on Easter Sunday. Let's have a 40-day fast period leading up to Easter. And then someone said, you know, 40 days is going to be a lot of work for people. Let's extend it to 46 days so that the six Sundays can be little feasts. So that you have little breaks along the way. Because this is not about being oppressive. Now, it did become that at different times. It certainly did. It certainly became superstitious and oppressive and all that. And so some of the reformers said, we don't want any of it. And others, Luther, Cranmer, others said, there's nothing evil about this so long as we remember to preach the gospel. So long as we keep people fascinated with Jesus, that really this whole thing of marking time along the life of Christ is to help us journey with Jesus. And so Lent could be a rhythm of grace for you, but I don't impose this on you. If it's not for you, if it smells, we talked last week about negative associations. If it's, if it's just, you can't get there, don't get there. It's okay. But if you think, I've never thought about humbling myself and repenting and receiving God's grace in a fresh way, and I've never thought about fasting, I, I've never turned away from something in order to turn towards something, I've never, maybe this is a season to do that with us in. It's funny, you know, because lots of non-denominational churches, New Life included, does, begins the year with a 21-day fast period. And, and, and some churches across the country make this huge deal of it like this was an, an, an original idea. Let's get a bunch of Christians to fast for an extended period of time. And I keep wanting to say, mm, fourth century, 40-day fast. Like, we've been there. Like, we, this isn't like a cool campaign with a hashtag, you know? <laughs> That there is, a, there is a certain power in knowing that we're joining with a great company of other Christians. Around the world, historic, church worldwide, church historic, and saying, maybe I can do this. All right, I'm going to give you a couple quick things, and my gosh, I'm sorry for going a bit long today. 
The key thing about fasting is it's not about getting God to do anything, all right? Let's say that up front. Some people will talk about fasting that way. That's not the way, that's not a gospel-centered way of talking about fasting. What fasting does is it gives us space to be attentive to the Lord. That's it. So you say, you know, I'm going to step away from this thing, and then I'm going to focus on this thing, praying that the Spirit would help me to be attentive to His work. You see how that's still trusting in the Spirit and focused on Christ, right? So this year, and I'm telling you this, and now you can hold us to it, right? No, it's an unforced rhythm of grace, remember. (laughs) Accountability is kind of weird. Okay, um... I think Holly and I have talked about what if we shut our laptops and phones down at a certain point in the evening. This may not be a deal for you, but for us, we put the kids to bed, and then it's like, you know, I'm catching up on emails, which means I'll be slower on my emails with these during Lent, so ease up on the emails, and I'll be better. No screens, and we're true, we've got a couple books marked. I'm going to read this book. What would we do with an extra 90 minutes every evening? I don't know, read? (laughs) So here's a couple things just to throw out there. What if we prayed through the Psalms during Lent as a church? Four a day, two in the morning, two in the evening. What if you woke up in the morning, you prayed two Psalms, just read them out loud. And then before bed, pray two more. We'll finish a little before Good Friday even. You're doing the math already. Four times 100, 100, no, no, sorry, 150 divided by four. Yeah, anyway. And then what if, what if you took one of the Gospels? John's Gospel works fairly well, right? 21 chapters. Could take two days for one chapter. Read maybe half a day. Or you could read the same chapter twice, let it really soak, and then go, go on. And to say, Holy Spirit, as I read these Gospels again, help me to really see Jesus. I, I, I've, been so, I've been inundated with my stress at work and my concerns and my problems and all this. I just, I need to see Jesus. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to soak in a gospel this Lent. See, these are ways that it can become a grace-filled, Christ-centered practice. Would you bow your heads this morning?